This episode of Repod is brought to you by SEO Orb, Buzzshot, Escape from Ebo Island, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is Neil Patrick Harris. He's a performer known for his iconic roles on stage and screen, but our community knows him as the patron celebrity of escape rooms and immersive gaming. He's also the creator of the brilliant tabletop puzzle experience, Box One. Welcome, Neil. Thank you so much. That was quite the introduction. I appreciate it. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. I am so excited to have you here. When we started podcasting, you were my dream guest. And now I don't even know where we're going to go from here. Ah, that's fantastic. I love it. I've been listening to every episode. It's an honor because I love how invested you guys are. And I also love how thorough your research and questionings are. They're really wonderful, long, in-depth conversations into people's brains. So it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Even if I did a little happy dance when when you said that you've been listening to it, it means so much to us. (laughs) And I love Survivor. So well played on that. (laughs) One of my bucket list goals is to be on the dream team someday because I'm friendly with Jeff Probst. And so he was always saying, you should come, you should come to Fiji and hang out and then you can hang out chill and you can be on the dream team. And I said, what is this dream team? He said, it's people that just come and they get to play the games before the contestants do. And I have not been able to do it yet, but it seems like it would be, that's the dream, really, to get to play the things with no consequence and then go eat dinner afterwards. Yeah, not starving to death. <laughs> so the dream team is actually part of the crew. They're part of Survivor crew. They're both usually a bunch of young kids from all over living the dream. And so they are the ones that go and test all the challenges In Fiji, when they're set up in place, they test them to make sure they really run the way they're supposed to run. A lot of the times, if you're watching the show, sometimes you'll notice before the challenge, they describe how the challenge will work and they'll have footage of people doing it. And you'll see that these people look like they're in working out gear. It's not the players. That is what the dream teamers do. In between, they usually are everybody's gopher. They do all of the other tasks out there. It's a really cool position. It's a bucket list thing. And if, you know, I'm always saying I would do Survivor, Celebrity Survivor in a second, but I think I would do the Celebrity Survivor that's in my mind in a second, because I feel like by the time Celebrity Survivor actually became a thing, I just don't know if it would be the fun, cool people that you would want to be doing it. I don't know if that's elitist. I would rather go on actual Survivor because I wouldn't want to do some weird 10-day celebrity thing where you're eating good meals and sort of a quasi-hybrid version. I'd want to Lisa it up, you know? (laughs) Lisa Welchel, is that her name? Yeah. Yes, 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 from Survivor Philippines. I, You know, I do feel like... The reason they have not done a celebrity version of Survivor is because Jeff Probst probably would not compromise in that way. I I don't know. Maybe you probably know him better than I do, but my sense is that he doesn't want to do a watered-down version of Survivor, and maybe that's why they haven't done it yet. That seems to be the case. Why don't you go on? Why don't you go on regular Survivor? I have a few other things happening in my life professionally, (laughs) and I just don't think I can commit the time. (laughs) It is the most amazing experience it changed my entire life like going out there just 
really being forced to pit yourself against the elements against the other people who are awful uh well not awful but you know everybody has a super strong aggressive alpha personality and they're and different totally totally different i've watched every season of the show i i process my life through the lens sometimes of you know how to interact and deal with people that you might not not, that might not be on your tribe that you might want to vote off the island. <laughs> and so, and it's actually helped steer my games in theory mind and to try not to be so myopic on things, but to appreciate the outwit, outlast, and outplay triangulate of the game is very synonymous with life in many ways. And I'm not the biggest reality TV fan in that. My two tenets in life is authenticity and creativity. Those are my two big things. If if I can get them both together, I'm thrilled. When you're watching Bachelors or Bachelorettes or things, I feel like the authenticity is a miss because how are you expected to have a romantic encounter authentically with a camera that's zooming into your face and a guy behind him holding a microphone that's pointing at you? And if you're fighting with someone, the camera's zooming back and forth. It just feels... It feels fraudulent, and I think the audience at this point knows it, and the people know it, and you're watching it more in a, in a different way. But with Survivor, I still feel like there's an element of actual authenticity, because if everyone dislikes you and you're next to go, you can keep finding hidden immunity idols. You can keep like making moves and keep winning the game. It's not all decided. Uh, the authenticity of the variables is something that I like a lot. It's also very hard to be inauthentic when you're starving to death. Fair. <laughs> I don't think I do well in the eating department because I get really hangry. I don't know how I'd fare with no rice or anything. You and me both. <laughs> in Survivor China, I went four days without eating. Uh, the very wow. first four days. And I'm like, I know that technically people can live for two weeks or more, like four weeks without eating. Most people, if they've gone 24 hours, they're like, oh my God, I feel weak. I'm, I can't think. I have a headache. It's a struggle, but it, it is entirely authentic. It is 100% real. There is no Love. secret food. There's no secret bathrooms or soap or anything. And everybody you meet out there, for my part, I found that they were portrayed exactly the way they are in real life. Nice. You can't fake it. You can't fake anything out there. So Neil... I've heard tale of you playing escape rooms and other immersive games for quite a few years, especially from owners in New York and LA. What's your escape room origin story? How did you find all of this stuff? Hmm. I've always been fascinated by structure and sort of not knowing how things work. Not in a, I must know how to solve it way, but more the machinations of how something works. And through that in my life, I'm from small town, New Mexico. I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then lived in a ski resort town called Ruidoso for about 12 years. And every year the state fair would come through Albuquerque and I would go straight to the Midway. And I was just curious about how the carnies worked. Who are these people? These quasi toothless potentially shady individuals that historically have dark backstories. And then how do they put together the zipper in a way that makes this a, a, attraction rideable? And then I got obsessed more with how does it work with the sideshow people? 
I saw a thing that said, see the spider woman. She's alive and we'll give uh, $100 to anyone who proves that she's not real. And it was only a quarter or something to see it. So I paid my quarter and you go in and it was a woman who was in a mirror box. And, and so the spider web was masking the 45 degree angle mirror that made it look like such her head was sticking out and then the little puppet thing. And I was so infuriated by this because she wasn't real. And they were saying that she was real because she was a real head and a person, but I appreciated sort of the aha, how does this work of it all? So magic became my hobby. And I was very interested in how things, like what's the secret behind how it works? So flash forward, and I started falling in love with theater and how the Broadway stage or how any stage, like how does it, where do the sets go? <laughs> where, you know, like where, how do they do quick changes? That's kind mm -hmm. of a magic trick. Like yeah. what is, what are the machinations behind it? And so I spent some time in New York loving shows like Mystery of Edwin Drood that had multiple outcomes where the audience themselves chose based on this Charles Dickens novel, who was the murderer, who was the detective, and who were the lovers. And then I thought, that's fascinating because the actors have to learn every single track. And every night, they're not sure if they're going to have a smaller part or a larger. I know, i just fascinated by that. And then it led me to sleep no more. I mean, that was my big aha moment that's adjacent to escape room world. I'll get to that in a sec. But Sleep No More just rocked my world, my creative thinking. The notion that all of this is happening simultaneously, that this giant piece of theater is, is hypnotic, entirely immersive. You have total autonomy and you might have a grand experience, a horny experience, you might have a debaucherous experience. Whatever happens is your night. And how do you do that? Like, not as an audience member, but as a producer. Like, how does that happen? Do you rehearse each individual thing and then write it down? So I like to try and reverse engineer these things. And that's where I think simultaneously I fell in love with the escape room because it fits into most of those narratives. You're solving things. You're put in places where you need to get out. And I'm excited to play them, but I'm, I'm honestly way more excited to have experienced them. So for me, I'm not the kind of person that needs to be on the board that says I have the fastest time. In point of fact, I don't like that. I love to escape the room. I don't really care what my time was at all. I don't even care about hints. I just want to have the immersive experience. So yeah, I in, in Los Angeles, not well, I'm backing up again because my enthusiasm for that happened at the same time as a show called Accomplice New York. Oh yeah. And a man named Tom Solomon had done this thing that was sort of small groups of people buy a ticket. They didn't know where they were going and they were given an address the day before or something, they had to go to this address. It was at the South Street Seaport in New York, and it was uh, by a restaurant. That's all you knew. And it was only six people, I think. And then there's a guy 
who's kind of fishy looking with a hat, I think. And he's yeah. like, Psst, hey, you guys, come over here. And you go around a corner and he tells you that some, someone's, been, someone's been kidnapped or you got to find this person. I don't even remember the narrative, to be honest. And he hands you a packet and he leaves. And that's it. You're on the real world. You're out in the street. And you take this packet out. What's happening? And there's a, a bunch of photos. And the photos like are, are, you don't even know what they mean. They're just photos of locations. And you start looking and you realize, oh, wait, this picture. And you sort of look in the distance. This picture is that traffic light and that building over there. And the next picture seems to be... So if you walk to where that first picture is and flip to the next picture, and you can turn... Oh, wait, this picture is that that street over there. And you start this walking tour where you're following these clues, kind of an escape room in the real world. And I just loved this. This was amazing for me because then this escape room is the world. I was fascinated by it. It walked me through Chinatown. You wound up purchasing a live frog, delivering it to uh, another person. And as you're walking around, you're not sure who's in the game and who's not. There's live actors that you interact with at certain restaurants. But because of this, I thought this is a brilliant idea because you have six, seven actors, but you really have a cast of a thousand. I loved Accomplice. For me, it was the thing that I recommended to tourists visiting New York because it's this immersive experience. It's a game. It's fun. But it also takes you on this walking tour of all of these sites and places you should see if you visit New York. And then it also introduces you to all these characters who are New York City archetypical characters. Most of the characters in this game are the kinds of people who only exist in New York. And that to me is so much fun. Agreed. And I loved it. I had a great time. You have a glass of wine at one spot and some cheese and you get to interact with the actors who are, you know, I guess every half hour they're having to engage with a new group and then spit them on their way. And again, me and machinations, I'm trying to figure out how they're doing it because it's just a guy sitting in a, in a restaurant. So what happens if the team before you is fast? You all meet up together? Are there multiple groups playing at the same time or is it like a 20 minute separation? It was staggered by 45 minutes or so per team. And then the cast members would text each other that this team just left or they got out of here quick. You better hurry up. So they were able to stage manage themselves pretty much. And it, you wound up at the end with a great reveal and the whole cast was there. I met Tom Solomon, who was the creator of that. We became friends. And then I co-produced Accomplice in Los Angeles and I helped him out with Accomplice in London. And I thought it was fascinating to be a part of it, to learn how it worked. I'm very passionate about haunted houses. I bought all the Leonard Pickle books when I was younger. I've studied the ideas of scaring people forward about room control. And I really was curious about how to design a haunted house. And one of my very best friends, Ed Alonzo, who's a comedy magician, was on Saved by the Bell. He would work at Knott's Berry Farm over the Halloween time called Knott's Scary Farm. And I got to be friends with the people that designed those haunts and the mazes and got to go through the mazes before they opened and sort of see how the magic worked and go behind the scenes. Then I met John Braver from a show called Delusion. And this dude took it to another level. He was a stuntman that had turned into a producer. So Delusion was immersive horror. You went to this creepy house in Koreatown and 
you queued up outside and this was a real sort of mansion, like a dilapidated mansion. And you walked in, he had these groups able to coexist and go through the house without seeing each other. And it was a living horror movie, but because he was a stuntman, he had people on wires that were able to crawl upside down on the walls, were able to vanish quickly, were able to high fall. And this was all choreographed. So we're sitting there talking to some creepy person who's in the entryway and they're telling us the story of the house. And then down the stairs on sort of hands and knees is this really weird looking individual, sort of a contortion-y kind of person, maybe kind of from the ring, hair disheveled. And they start coming a little bit towards us. And the person that's talking to us with their lamp in their hand, very like Charles Dickens, turns and says, you, get out of here. And the, the person on the stairs turns and leaps. And then I guess they're on a wire, but you didn't see it. It's like whoosh, vanishes without moving their arms and legs. I was gobsmacked. It was breathtaking. All of a sudden, all bets were off. Gravity had been altered in this. At times, you were running down corridors. There were people upside down on walls that were chasing you. It was nuts. Loved that. So then I thought, how did that work? So I became friends with John Braver. <laughs> and I then wound up co-producing The Next Illusion because I love this stuff. And I'm curious as to not only what the experience can be for the person, but what the experience can be for the people that are making it. I have an edict that if it can be super fun to design or create, if it can be super fun to execute, and then super fun to experience, you've won the game. If you can come up with content that is exciting to make, and then exciting to execute, and then people that watch it like it, boom, you're crushing your own life. So I loved that, and I did that. That was the West Coast vibe, and then on the East Coast was more Sleep No More. I guess that was my foray into escape rooms. That's very cool. For Lisa and I, we found escape rooms, and then that opened us up to this other world of other immersives. But we come at it in a very similar way to you, where it's not about the intellectual Olympics of it. It's not about proving something. It's about enjoying the experience and taking it in and milking it for absolutely everything that you can. That's the thing that appeals to me is the amount of creativity and the different types of creativity that have to be involved to produce one of these things well is such a curious combination and it changes from person to person and production to production. And that's what I think has been really fun about this podcast for us has been every single person we interview is coming at it with this completely different worldview and collection of skills and team behind them. And they make very different things that are all structurally somewhat similar. You're the first person I've heard say that their specific reason of why they like escape rooms is because they want to know how it worked. A lot of times we hear we want to create a cool experience or like me, I like the adventure of it. I like being in the experience. I like feeling like I'm transported to another world. I always say survivors, the greatest, biggest immersive game in the world. And I'm a terrible actor. So I need to have everything around me really convince me that I am there, you know, and that's why I like playing these things. So I, I thought it was so fascinating that that is your reason. It makes total sense with being interested in magic and you want to know how it works. I'm one of those people I sometimes don't want to know. I want to maintain the illusion that the magic is real. I almost don't want to know how it works sometimes. 
Well, yeah, and there's certain levels of immersion that defy logic to me. I'm very close friends with Darren Bousman, who did the tension experience in Los Angeles. He's a, a film director. He's got the new Saw movie that's coming out or just came out. And his immersion level was insane. I did the tension experience in LA and you meet outside, they put bags over your head, they put you into a van, you went to a, an unmarked location. And here's how that worked. Whatever the audience members desired or did actively altered the narrative that they were doing. So in addition to having a massive script that furthers an actual narrative going along, they were calling audibles the entire time. If someone decides that they just want to stay in a room and hang out, then that's what happened that evening. And what was going to happen later didn't end up happening. And this ability to literally choose your own adventure, <laughs> I found I didn't even know how to process it. I was actually quite bothered by it. Like I felt like I was doing it wrong, which was actually the same experience I had in Sleep No More the first time I was. I had a mask on in Sleep No More. I'm in some graveyard. There's no one around me. It smells like dirt. There is dirt. I hear stomping above me. I'm not there. I'm like, this is the worst thing I've ever experienced. I'm, I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm failing at sleep no more. I'm doing it all wrong. I'm having a meltdown while I'm watching the show. And it finally had to use the other part of my brain and say, it's okay, Neil, you're here. This is your experience. And maybe this is the lesson of the moral of the story in life. And as soon as I did that, and I don't believe in stuff, but as soon as I relented, and I, I'm sure this is just circumstantial, in walks a dude with no mask on, head bleeding, and he walks right by me and then I start following him and he leads me to a place and I have the most amazing experience with this individual. So you kind of have to give up the thinking sometimes and enjoy what it is. But I can't help but experience it in multiple ways at the same time. I love experiencing it and I'm simultaneously really intrigued as to how it happened. Still with basic escape rooms, I wonder... When they were first happening and you'd go to a strip mall and there'd be three of them and one would be a carnival and one would be Sherlock Holmes and one would be, uh, I don't know, you have to escape the apartment. I wondered how, is there a book? Was there a website? Was there a single way to do it? They were coming up like weeds <laughs> and they were all kind of the same. And I was like, is there a single person behind this or was this just like-minded people all at the same time coming up with these? I ask you, actually. I can't tell you exactly how it happened. I have a hypothesis that I'm pretty confident in. And I think that escape rooms, like every other form of entertainment and every other medium, are one giant burglary. Everybody <laughs> is taking ideas from everybody. So the first escape room in the U.S. was from Scrap, who opened up in San Francisco, and they priced their games at $28. They had a 60-minute clock. They had puzzles. They had Ikea furniture. And the wow. second escape room that opened up, second and third, were Puzzle Break and Escape the Room. And they cost $28 and had 60-minute clocks and had Ikea furniture and lots of puzzles and Game Masters and three hints. So I think that Basically, we had these original companies 
copy the first one. And then everybody who went and played said, oh, I can do this. They went home and they pulled out a piece of paper and they wrote, well, I paid $28 and I had 10 people with me. So $280 an hour times, I don't know, 10 hours a day times 365 days per year. I'm going to make millions of dollars off of this. And, and it's just <laughs> Ikea furniture and some, you know, some weird puzzles. So I think that it was a lot of simultaneously kind of copying off of one another. There's always the creativity of what you individually bring as a creator. And that's the thing that started to differentiate and warp. And when I say warp, I mean, in a good way, warp this, mm. this core model. But that's what I think had happened and I think that that's one of the things that I advocate for among escape room creators who are really trying to do something special is the best way to carve out your niche in a, in a market is to make games that your players walk in and they don't leave saying, I could do that. If you can figure out how to make your games so that people walk away and they say, man, I love that. I'm going to go tell my friends versus walking out of there and saying, I love that. I can totally do that. I'm going to go open mine and do the same thing. That's the difference. Are we talking about a level of polish here, though? Is it more about hmm. something with sophisticated production value? It's on a lot of different levels. If a game is locked boxes, Ikea furniture, and padlocks with some puzzles, anybody can walk out of there and say, I can do that. With any budget, with any background, they can walk out of those early games and say, oh, I can totally do that. You can't walk out of the room in Berlin and say, oh, I can do that. Unless you have a background in amusement park design or haunted houses or, or some kind of theatrical production game design, maybe multiple of them, you're not going to walk out of that company and feel like, oh, anybody could do that. I'm going to go do that. And yet you leave inspired to do something like that. But that's the goal, is to inspire yeah. creative, talented people to go and do creative, talented things, not to inspire people who just think, oh, this is a good business model. I was thinking about starting a business. I was thinking about maybe opening up a Dunkin' Donuts franchise. But now I see this escape room thing, and damn it, this is the one that's <laughs> going to be for me. You want to attract people who see themselves as creatives, who want to go and build something special, not people who just want to open a business. Agreed. It's the same with magicians. You want to find a magician that inspires other people to want to create magic, but you don't want to find a magician that just is doing the same act that he saw the guy in Vegas do. Exactly. Now, this, this actually kind of brings us to one of the things I wanted to ask you about, which is you have an interesting resume as a magician and I think even more a student of magic. You served as president of the Academy of Magical Arts and incorporated magic into many of your projects in all sorts of different subtle and not so subtle ways. What do you feel is the distinguishing feature of a truly amazing magical performance? I think what I'm turned on by is someone who has a knowledge of the craft and has figured out how to individualize it in a way that is fun for both laymen and magicians alike. So that can be a card magician who can do some really great stuff with cards in ways where I'm able to know kind of what they're doing or even what they're doing, but the way that they're doing it, their style, their pattern, whatever it might be, the X factor for them is fun to watch as a magician and also super fun 
to watch as an audience. I've been drawn more towards the visual, towards stage magic, probably from, as I said earlier, going through Broadway and seeing the set of Les Miserables come pulling in on a big turntable and sort of that to me is magic. So I love the stage magic and I'm very, very opinionated and easily irritated by people who do mediocre magic on stage because they don't really care. Magicians can be good and they can wind up doing the same eight, 11 minutes and make a decent career out of it. They can win awards for it, go on cruise ships. They can do corporate magic. But I feel like if they're not trying new things, then they're just kind of rinsing and repeating over and over. And weirdly, magic is a profession that you can buy. You don't have to have any skill. You can literally go to a magic shop or online and purchase illusions and then hire a girl to be your assistant and then rip songs from the internet and do an act and then four wall a show in your hometown and you're now a magician. And that's weird because there's, you know, no one passes judgment on you. They just suddenly don't like magic. So when I was in <laughs> positions to affect change, I took it quite seriously. I was the president of the Academy of Magical Arts, which is where the Magic Castle is in, in LA. I was on the board of directors before that, and I was a junior member before that. And that was not part of my path at all. That was quasi-circumstantial, winding up on the board. It was like, you're a famous celebrity. Do you want to be on the board? I don't know. What, what does that even mean? Oh, you have monthly meetings. It'll be fun. Cary Grant did it when he was living. Sure, why not? So I was on the board. And then I recognized that this organization was faltering. I suddenly became the vice president. The president resigned. And then I was suddenly the president of a eight, $9 million organization that's at the height of magic and was failing in many ways, like about to go bankrupt and a lot of problems. And not on my dime was that going to happen. I care too much about magic. I care too much about showing people who do amazing things. I've always been a proponent of the Cirque du Soleil's, of the jugglers, of the magicians. It's a specialty skill, and I don't know why I'm so passionate about it, but I really am. And I think a trip to the Magic Castle comes with expectations. And in order to get to the Magic Castle, there's a, a, a dress code. You have to be invited by a member. It costs money per person, plus you have to have dinner. And so your experience at the Magic Castle could be a real net negative. I'm a friend of a magician. Now I'm finally going to the Magic Castle and I have a door charge. Okay, that's a lot. And then I have to eat a mediocre steak dinner. Well, that wasn't very good. It starts to feel like a timeshare pitch. Then the magic's bad. And then you never want to go back. Now, this is the opposite of what magic should be in life at the Magic Castle. And I worked really hard, not singularly, but to look at every element of it the machinations of it, and see how we can improve everything so that when you leave this experience, you want to come back, not even here to the Magic Castle, but you want to go and experience magic again, right? That's what I'm very passionate about. And whether that's hosting the Tony Awards, and it's the same idea. It's, we want this show to be great. And this show is great because it's filled with great performers. And thank you for tuning in authentically, because the creativity that you're about to see is going to be dynamite and it's going to make you want to come to New York and see a Broadway show. And so I've just always found magic and the ideas behind magic intoxicating and hypnotic 
in life misdirection as parents do it to children, you know, to get them to stop focusing on one thing. <laughs> you use misdirection in your life to put the binky in the other hand. <laughs> in escape rooms, there's a lot of magic principles that are used as well in story, in execution, in the games themselves. Is there a change that you affected when you were president at the Magic Castle that you're particularly proud of? We shifted, we being the board of directors, shifted the focus on being revenue driven to member experience driven. And we went from the cost of valet parking through the food and beverage department, through the rehiring of people who were hiring the acts. We increased the salaries of the performers so performers would feel respected when they were performing so that they would want to give a better performance. And we really tinkered away and looked at every element of the experience because if the drinks are high-priced and not well-made and the server's not friendly, that's critical. And that's just ordering an old-fashioned. <laughs> and so we looked at the queuing, we looked at the show times, the show schedules, so that people that are wanting to see multiple shows don't feel like their entire night has been spent lining up. We made sure that there were auxiliary performances that were not timed so that people could still say that they saw four or five different things, even though they managed to only see one show. Because as it became successful again, which was awesome, and it's just reopened, which is even more awesome, given that this last year has been really hard on variety arts performers, with success, which was exciting, came new problems because then it was overcrowded. And then mm -hmm. people were complaining because they weren't able to see as much or members were complaining because there's too many people that aren't members. And so you did have to sort of keep shifting and readjusting based on new circumstances, which is also machination and kind of fun. And I feel like I had a little extra to prove being that my profession was not running a business, that I, my profession was, was actor. I wanted to make sure people didn't think that I was just doing this as a lark or doing this because I'm recognizable. And that has been a runner for a lot of the things that I'm passionate about and that I've done is that I do join forces with people because I think that immersive theater show is super kick-ass and I want to be a part of it and we create a new one together. It's important to me because I want people to have good experiences that it not be thought I'm doing it for ego or for vanity. I legitimately like these things and I legitimately want to put my stamp on them in ways that I think they can be improved. I'm so excited to announce that we have sponsors this season. And our first sponsor is SEO Orb. They're a digital marketing and SEO company focused specifically on the escape room community and industry. As a digital UX designer and product manager, I have hired and interviewed many SEO people, and they're not all equal. I can tell you, Piyush passed all of my interview questions with flying colors. He comes at this from a really great place. He's got an ethical bent that I, I'm really, really into. He only works with one company in a given region. 
so that he isn't pitting his clients against one another and forcing them to compete. And man, he just loves this stuff. I could really feel his passion for the industry. He loves escape rooms. If you're looking to grow your escape room business, you should get on a call with Piyush and have a conversation with him. I think you'll see what we see. You can learn more about Piyush and his work at seoorb.com. Details in the show notes. We're going to move on to discussing Neil's game, Box One. This is a tabletop puzzle, trivia, adventure designed for one player, and we are going to get a little spoilery. So I strongly urge you to pause this podcast and play Box One first if you haven't played it yet. Or you can jump ahead to one hour, four minutes, 40 seconds. Neil will also be joining us for a deeper spoiler conversation in our Patreon-exclusive bonus episode. I'm going to hit you with some honesty, which is when I heard that a playing card company teamed up with a celebrity to produce a tabletop puzzle game, my initial reaction was not, this is going to be legendary, but it was. Can you walk us through the thought process that brought us the concept of the single player puzzle trivia adventure game? A hundred thousand percent. And I'm so happy to be able to talk about it. I was listening to the Puzzling Company podcast and Zach and Jared had you and Lisa on as guests and you- We were, we were surrogate Neil. <laughs> into box one. But the whole front end of it was them discussing it. And I'm downstairs in my house listening with, with headphones on in my work room. And I'm like grinning from ear to ear and like wanting to raise my hand and interject <laughs> because I had so much to say. But part of it was really interesting to hear like viewers' comments and people's responses to it. So yes, I'm very, very good friends with a man named Jonathan Baim, B-A-Y-M-E. He is the head of a company called Theory 11. He's a magician. He also produces magic. He produced a show that was called uh, Magic at the Nomad Hotel with a magician named Dan White. And that was wonderfully immersive, small, like a, a parlor setting with a great guy who did amazing magic. I went with my husband. We saw it. I became friends with Jonathan just through similar interests. Jonathan also makes playing cards, but Theory 11 does more than playing cards. They make packet tricks of smaller single tricks that you can buy and order. And the packaging is first class. And Jonathan has a great love for typography and fonts and paper stock and colors. And he's just, he's very smart. And so we became friends over that. And he was doing his playing cards and he said, hey, would you ever want to create a game together? And I said, maybe. He said, well, Target is selling my cards, but they've asked if there's anything else that I would want to make. What about a game? And I thought, yeah, that's a cool idea. What kind of game? I don't know. So we went and we bought, we went to Target and we bought all the games that were out party games and we looked at them and sort of broke them down, saw how they worked and took them apart and saw how the pieces fit in the boxes and what the gameplay was. And we created a game called Amazed, A-M-A-Z-E-D. And it's mainly not puzzles that you solve, but riddles and there's different difficulty levels. They're easy ones, moderate ones and challenging ones. And then the uniqueness that 
Theory 11 came up with amazed was that the game board itself can be folded and opened into 16 different maze paths that sort of shoots and ladders style. You can follow then the red hard path or the medium moderate path or the blue easy path. And then every time you play it, you can just flip, fold, flip, fold, open it. And then it's a new playing field. So it kind of is a randomizer of a board. And that was sort of designed by Blake Vogt, who's a magician and works with Theory 11. And I thought that was a really clever idea, made it kind of cool and a different structure. So we did Amazed. And it sold well, and we were proud of it. And it was cool. It looked cool. The dice are cool. And <laughs> we wanted to make sure every component within it was was of a good quality, because I just think that's fun when you're playing a game and it's good quality. There's a game called The Game of Stranger. Have you heard of that? No. The Game of Stranger. And it's this beautiful, expensive $250 game or something. It's this great box that has amazing tokens and dice. And I thought, oh, if it could look like that, that would be amazing. So then... That sold well. And they said, if you ever want to come up with anything else, let us know. Cut to, I'm with some friends in Connecticut, the Berkshires, I think, with my friends, Greg and James. We're playing a game. We were playing an escape room game. It was that one, it's not, you'd know the name of it. It's the one that comes with keys and a little box. Escape room, the game with the chrono decoder and it beeps at you. Correct. So I brought that along to play and we played it one night and it was fun, but it was kind of plasticky, a little rickety, and the gameplay was a little bit awkward, but it was fun. You know, I didn't hate it. I didn't regret it. And then I was sitting by the fire and I thought, you know what's missing in the game world? That was all my preamble. This is the origin story of box one. <laughs> I said, what's missing in the gaming world is a game for just one person. Meaning, and I was kind of reverse engineering this, I thought this would be a great way to sell a game. If I was on Ellen, say, and promoting my new game, there's plenty of Cards Against Humanities now. There's plenty of Scrabbles. There's plenty of games, but they're all for multiple players. What if there was a single player party game? That was my pitch to myself and my friends, Greg and James. But I said, that would be super interesting because there's no market for that, especially at a Target. So I thought, what if it was called Box One? And I just started thinking, what if it was this? And what if it was this? And then I said, oh, wait, what if it was like wrapped up in almost butcher paper or something? And it wasn't what you thought when you opened it and started playing this game. It turns out that it was actually some sort of narrative story that turns into maybe an escape room game, kind of what we were playing. That's how Box One came to be. Then I went back to Jonathan. I said, I've got this killer idea with a killer title called Box One. And it's a game for one. And it turns out to be an escape room for one. He didn't quite know what I meant. And I kept talking him through it. And so then we went and started looking at other escape rooms on the market. And we saw Juliana and Ariel's first escape room in the box, Wild Optimists. And we played the werewolf experience, I think. Experiment, yes. Experiment. And we played it with the headspace of because I'd already talked through my box one thing. We're trying to figure out what it would be. And thankfully, that wasn't what we were planning. And we were so happy because <laughs> I didn't want to have this idea and then play games and go, oh, no, this is exactly what we, we wanted to do. We can't do this because someone's already done it. 
And we loved the werewolf experiment. It was super great. It had a time on it, like a 60 minute time thing again. And for some reason, I'm not a fan of that. I don't like the, I, I don't mean about that specific game, just mm -hmm. about the, the games in general of you have to do this in 60 minutes. It creates an anxiety in me. I feel like I'm not enjoying it. I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> That's my own, my own therapeutic upbringing. But I just feel like, quick, we're quick. I'm, I can't solve this. I'm looking at the piece of paper and I don't know what's happening and I'm doing it wrong. Well, you want to savor it. You don't want yeah. to rush through an experience, especially when a designer has put a lot of thought into the production value of something. That's how totally. I feel too. I never like time limits. And so that was one of the, the things I wanted Box One to maintain was that it wasn't a race and that there was no solving it. But then as we started having these conversations about what it could be, it became really fun because I was able to create an experience that was mass market that I could promote and have fun with in all these different ways. It was challenging because it's mass market. It has to appeal to people who love escape games and play them all and to people who've never played them before. And in point of fact, Box One is a proper escape game, but you don't know that when you start playing it. You may not even realize it when you play it. Very well said. Because in a perfect world, you think that this is actually happening, that you're playing this game and someone has been kidnapped and they're sending you messages throughout the game and only you and you're able to do it. And so we had to craft everything in a way that was sort of able to be for new people, for younger people, for retirees, for divorcees, for everyone, but also for the hardcore escape room fans. And I feel like given the criticisms of it, which were a lot of you need to follow instructions and go in the order that we ask is totally justified. Unfortunately, I was thinking more mass market and assuming that most people were not escape room fans that were playing it, if that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. When you stop and you think about in the tabletop escape room world, there is this weird debate that the community of creators have been having for years without realizing they're having this debate with one another. And that is, are players supposed to do what's presented in front of them or are players supposed to go and search literally everything? And it's this back and forth that as a player, the more you play, the more confusing it actually starts to become. And it's not anyone's fault. It's just a lot of people coming up with different creative solutions to create these games. They just happen to be in a little bit of conflict with one another. And it's, it's interesting because there are games where if you don't take apart every piece of the box, you know, at some point you're going to crack open the hint system and it's going to be like, did you open the box and tear open the lid dummy? And then there are other games where doing that, you will just shortcut the whole process. And so it's a challenge for everybody that's no one's fault. A huge challenge. And we thought about it and that's why we created the game in a way that is very slow starting. Is, mm -hmm. is We created a shoe that holds cards and that you're required to take the top card from the deck, read it, respond to it, take the next card from the top. The idea of that being so that you'll sort of stay singular in your focus. 
because if you say explore and play everything, you're going to expose everything really quickly. We worked really hard in making the shoe, the box itself, not a box that you would want to take all the cards out and stack them, but that you'd want to keep them in the stack. So we have, you can see a space where you can see that all the cards are there, but you're asked to just take the top card. So it's almost like a poker shoe or a, a blackjack yeah. shoe in Vegas where you take from the top. And it was a very interesting and specific build for that because I also wanted that deck, the cards themselves, when you take them out, I thought that would also be a cool keepsake because it's magnetized and you can put something inside of it later, but also it can't be smooth on the front because you need to be able to run your fingers through it to see that it's actual cards. So we spent a lot of time thinking through every detail of the experience. And I wanted box one to be a bit of a magic trick, almost like a magic show. And I was willing to make myself look like an asshole. I was willing to go <laughs> out. And in, in point of fact, one of my favorite things to promote box one is to go and Andy Kaufman myself. And I've done it a few times where I'll do I, an interview. I've noticed. And, <laughs> I'll ask them to ask me, so I hear that you and a friend created box one, and then I will be offended by the question. And I really wanted to do it live on morning television where they couldn't edit away with Al Roker or something, where Hoda Codby is upset that I'm like mad all of a sudden and it gets weird because I thought that's fun to do as an actor is to be like, where did you, I asked your segment producer to not mention that. Why, do, why would you even ask that question? That's... Did you it not? And then how it be by one on the box? Authentically awkward, which would maybe make them go, "What is this game about?" Which would probably be good for selling boxes of just curiosity, but also folds into the narrative of the game itself, which is that I'm pretending to be cheesy guy. Welcome to the game. Enjoy the game. But the deeper you dig, you find out that I'm not the guy. That it turns out that I'm pretending to be, and that becomes its own story. So it was fun to create in literally almost every single way. PG, you got your wish. Your favorite company of the past year, Telescape by Buzzshot, is one of our sponsors. I love Telescape. And in fact, if you even look at any of the reviews that I wrote on roomescapeartist.com, if they use Telescape, I will always say, have I mentioned yet how much I love Telescape? I mean, it's so easy and intuitive to pull up the inventory. You know, I don't want to have to manage tabs and web pages when I'm playing a game. I want all my brain power to be focused on playing the puzzles. And Telescape really allows you to do that. It truly does. It's a player-friendly user interface that works with a wide variety of virtual escape room types. You can do tons of tons of different things with it. And it's really cool when you see your cursor dancing on the screen with all of your friends' cursors as you're all doing things together. It just works really, really well. And on top of that, the price is staggeringly low. I did a double take when I looked at their website and actually asked them myself to clarify the pricing because it was so low that I couldn't fathom it. They are an awesome company that has done a lot to adapt their business and be there to help all of these other escape room companies adapt through the pandemic era. If you want to make a game, if you're a professional or an amateur, honestly, the pricing works and the functionality is there for you. In my opinion, this is the golden standard 
Learn more at telescape.com. Details in the show notes. So I want you to ask me a couple questions about things that you were confused by or didn't like, and I'm not going to defend my position, but I'm curious because I think we have explanations or justifications for some things. Because I remember in the puzzling companies thing, one of the harsh criticisms, and listen, I'm super okay with harsh criticisms. I'm not like bent on it. But one of them was that it was all MPH and he was too smug and that it was like he was making himself out to be so great. And I was so pleased with that negative response because that was intentional, right? The intention was it was supposed to be created by me, Neil Patrick Harris. I'm the only guy. I'm so cool. So that when you see that I'm a total dick when you're playing the game, that it's juxtaposed. So I'm willing to take those hits (laughs) for the sake of the narrative. I thought that was brilliant. And I said on Puzzling Company when they read that criticism that I thought the person must have played a different game than me. Because yes, the character of NPH goes on this arc that starts off smug. But for the majority of the game, my reaction was not, NPH is an amazing guy. I'm like, this guy, he's the villain. And, And not like in like the cool Darth Vader, like you're sort of rooting for him kind of way. Like just straight up, he's the villain. Yeah. <laughs> That's the and whole it, point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And by being the villain and by being able to have a, a digital component to it, mm-hmm. at a certain point in the game, you do need to use your computer and, and sort of hack into things. Mm-hmm. That was a great opportunity for us because we can change that content whenever we want to. So we'll add videos to that. We'll change it up so that it feels like a growing experience and doesn't have to be something where we go and have to pay a lot of money to hire a studio and film some stuff. We're able to throw in content if we need to at any time to keep it kind of fluid, which is helpful for cost, to be honest. So the the criticism that I had, because the things we review are experiences, we look at the review as as part of the experience, because whether we mean to or not, our review gets intimately tied into the experience that the player has, if they read it before or if they read it after. We're either coloring the way that they're going to approach the the experience, or we are adding new colors or shades to their memory of the experience. But either way, we are having some impact on them. And so we try to write our reviews, at least on our best days, in a way that helps the player optimize to have the most fun for themselves, which is where a lot of our cautions about do what the game tells you to when it tells you to came from. The thing that that threw me off was the paragraph in the middle of the instructions that says, the game involves a series of challenge cards that you need to play in order. In order is in all caps, which is awesome. Follow every, every is bold, instruction strictly. Great. Keep your eyes peeled. Okay. As you never know when this game might take a turn. And that in in some ways it's foreshadowing what's going to happen, but in other ways, especially for me as alert escape room puzzle player, I'm saying, okay, I need to study everything. I need to look under the box lid. I need to pull the tray out. I need to poke around. And at some point, very shortly into the game, I was like, I made a huge mistake. I'm going to go and, you know, <laughs> I'm going to pull yeah. back. I'm going to put it all back the way it was. I'm going to, you know, just know that that stuff is, you know, know what is there, but I'm going to put myself back into the mindset of, okay, I'm, I'm playing this linearly. 
that was worded very specifically like and thought through very specifically for with a lot of questions about exactly your experience mm -hmm. and we decided that since it was a mass produced thing in target that we wanted to steer towards people that didn't know that it was an escape room game and so when you start with the uh, instructions being follow everything in order exact details and then we thought if you just end there they're going to mm -hmm. play three of these cards and think it's a really simplistic word game and they're going to stop playing <laughs> because it starts off pretty easy so then we wanted to add the second half of that sentence to say you never know what's gonna happen so that you'll kind of dangling carrot a little bit but it we were marketing so this you know sense. if we were selling this to people who buy these things all day including myself i think we would probably have worded it differently and to be honest this was its own beta test as anyone mm -hmm. as julianne and ariel can tell you and have told you figuring out how to manufacture a single box in a way you have to source every single thing and everyone that you talk to says that oh this can't be done like we mm -hmm. had real issues with certain inks that go in certain mm -hmm. places in box one and they said that they're not able to do it that it can't be done and jonathan bame knows that it can because he knows magic and he said no it can be done and here's how it's done and that was just for ink I mean, there was a yeah. lot of trickery within box one. Could we have tried to design it so that things didn't accidentally appear probably, but you're also dealing with plastics that lock together with paper that locks together with special folds. You want to make sure that everyone is having the same gaming experience. In point of fact, one of the very first things you get is a black envelope that has a card in it. And even that isn't what it seems. And the very first version of that exposed that second half of the sentence more often than we liked. So we had to sort of redesign the envelope itself because we really wanted that to be a great surprise that the very first thing you've discarded, you might need again. So a lot of it was trial and error. And I'm just so over the moon happy with Jonathan Bame and with Theory 11 and what they've done, I really legitimately think you get a challenge coin at the end. I think for people that haven't done escape room box games, it feels like I wanted it to be a narrative that you play through and that you keep having these kind of, are you, are you serious right now? Is, is this what I'm supposed to be doing right now? Wait, wait, the box does this now? Are you serious? And that, that's why, which everyone else seems to hate and I love <laughs> is there's I put a stop in the middle of the game where you don't get to just play through. You have to stop for a day. That was all me. That's just me. I'll take the hit for it. I love the stop. I didn't want people to try and solve box one in 37 minutes and 15 seconds. I didn't want that as an option. We wanted to create a user interface that allowed you to think you were actually talking to someone online and that you couldn't just give the right words to know that you're talking to some robot that's waiting for specific words, but that you might actually be talking to an actual person. And in doing so, that person may not be available when you are trying to talk to them. And it creates a scenario where you have to be playing by yourself and that you can't just power through it. So I, I recognize that it, it happens late in the game and that it 
probably should have happened at intermission, but I don't know. I like that you kind of have to sort of stop and then go back to it and see, is this thing's real? I wanted to challenge the notion that, is this really, really happening? Or is this part of the game? Or am I actually doing this for real, real? You guys had a lot of attention to detail that made it feel immersive and made it really feel like it was happening in the moment, especially those final few videos at the very end where I felt like I was watching this live. I'm sitting there cheering the guy on. I don't want to say too much about it. I was like, yeah, like, you know, go. (laughs) And it felt visceral. It felt very real. So I do appreciate that part, although I didn't like the weight. It's fair. I like the weight because I, I like deliberate design. I like stuff that's crafting and experience. And that to me is, I like it when creators take the mold and they say, all right, we're going to do all of these things that are normally done because we want to do them, but we're going to break from it in the following places because we want to do something different. And when you bring that kind of intentionality into it, I like to sit back and say, okay, well, why was it done that way? And even when we talk about the instructions thing that I didn't love, when I hear your thought process behind it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think you have to optimize in one direction or the other. You have to optimize Mm. for the first time player or the many time player, because optimizing for all things is optimizing for nothing. So Mm. If you have to choose, I'm an experienced player, I'll figure it out. And I did. And it didn't really diminish my experience in a meaningful way. It it pulled me out of the world for a little bit, but then I got back into it. You you can't expect that of the first time player. So if you're erring in a direction, I think you erred in the right direction. Nice. Thanks. I think the only thing that I would have wanted a little bit more is I would have wanted a little bit more in-game justification for it. I understand why you did it as the designer, but when I'm playing this, I almost want to see like, you know, say if it's like something you have to put in the freezer, something you have to leave out in the sun, you know, it, was there really a reason? Like I want there to be an actual in-game reason where I would have to wait that really made a lot of sense, that made a little bit more sense of why I needed an actual 24 hours. It makes perfect sense. And again, it was literally me saying, let's put a stop. And Jonathan said, what should it be like a two hour stop? And I said, no, it should be 24 hours. (laughs) And he said, why should it be 24 hours? And I said, I just, I don't want people to rush through this game. So I think that it should feel like a spy thriller where you need to meet him at this street corner at this specific time. And that it's not that you can just enter a password and then move on. And arbitrary, maybe a little bit, but I don't know. I like that it adds a little real world element to it that probably you didn't experience because you want that you're deep in the game. But as a creator, I just thought that might be valuable. The justification thing is, is, is definitely logical. It may even be my own expectations because when I was arranging with David to play this because he wanted to watch me play it. He was like, you will need to do it over like two days. And for some reason in my head, I don't know why I was thinking there was going to be a chemical reaction that I needed to wait 24 hours for. Oh, that's interesting. I have have no idea why I thought that. And then, so I guess because I was expecting that. And then it was just literally like, you just have to sit on the clock. But again, we're designing this as a love letter to people who like escape rooms, but we were designing it for the woman whose husband is bowling, who is alone for the night and has never done this before. Yeah. In my mind, I'm, I'm imagining the gameplay being someone like an Angela Lansbury, Jessica Fletcher mm-hmm. type that's at her desk and she's like, wait, what? And it's what? And this is now, wait, what? I have to turn on my computer? Wait, what? <laughs> it's magical. 
It was like a magic show. There was spectacle. There was misdirection. There were all kinds of cool tricks. But yes, play it in the way it's meant to be played. David had to step in multiple times because I'm so conditioned to start looking for stuff. Uh, and he was like, stop looking at the box. He was like, stop turning it around and going through it and turning things upside down. He's like, just play the cards. He's like, just go to the cards, do what it says. And I, I, okay, fine. Like you had to raid me. And so anyone else <laughs> who is not listening to this that have not played this, play it just at face value at first. Go start with the cards. <laughs> That said, and I appreciate you doing that, but we, I, I think a lot of the stuff is hidden pretty well. You'd have to really want to decide that there's other stuff within it. I yeah. mean, uh, when you first open the lid of the box, the stuff that you receive is cards, a little mm -hmm. pad of paper and a pen, and it's a pretty large box. But if you were to take that off, there's nothing underneath it, right? So, you know, it's not that you have to be dainty and delicate with it. You just shouldn't no, go around, you know, scratching mm -hmm. at it to try yeah. to open yeah, it up. Yeah, yeah, I, I was scratching. <laughs> <laughs> nice. The idea that this was a love letter to escape rooms, but also for first time players, to me, that is the best love letter to escape rooms is the one that brings new people into this, because that's the goal of this whole podcast. We think the world of people who would love these kinds of experiences is much larger than the world of people who have found them. And so we're trying so hard to expand that audience and to expand the people who are going to enjoy this kind of stuff. Same. I feel that uniformly. That's why I do a lot of the things that I do. I, I have a weird and interesting platform to be able to get swaths of people to pay attention to random things and escape rooms. Like when I found Mysterious Package Company, and I could send it to other people and they didn't even know it was happening. And they got these crates of weird things and letters <laughs> in the mail every month for months. I just thought that was the greatest thing ever. And so if I can turn people on a little bit to the idea that these escape room games exist, great. In point of fact, I'm sitting surrounded by <laughs> so many games because I love them and I buy them and they're time consuming. And so I don't end up playing them all. So I have envelopes i'm literally my computer is on crack a nut mysteries because you guys <laughs> recommended it and i'm and i just unboxed it to key, save the box for the computer to set my computer on and inside this unbelievable cool box and i'm and i can't wait to play it i'm just surrounded it's, by these things i love I'm it so glad which one did you buy no, if it says what it's called. Uh, in November on. 1885, a small, quiet town in northern Michigan is forever changed. <gasps> this is so exciting. Yeah. This yeah. card has an objective on it. Locate ritual and perform it. Wait, what? Oh my gosh, you guys. Watching him even look at like I wanted I want to come do an escape room with you now. It's, this is terribly it's, exciting. Got this like so, wide-eyed childlike wonder. It's amazing. I'm so excited that you have Root of All Evil from Krakenut because and you you would know this from listening to Puzzling Company, but Angela Lawson Scott from Krakenut Mysteries. Um I think he's probably the biggest box one fan out there. Really? And yeah, she spent much of the past year visiting targets all over northern Michigan, buying up every copy of box one that she could, and then shipping nice. them over to Europe, essentially at cost, just to hook up puzzlers on the other side of the Atlantic. And for that, I've dubbed her box one Oprah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, she's from northern Michigan, which is awesome. My husband's from Michigan, so that's uh, even an extra bonus. Yeah, we wanted to do the international shipping as best we could. We had to have it maintained as a Target exclusive for a mm. period of time. And then once that period of time uh, was up, we could then open it up. So you don't have to go to Target to get it. In fact, box1games.com allows for now international shipping, and we can do it directly That's... through us instead of through Target. That's great. But yeah, so, she's awesome. And I can't wait to do Crack and Nut. Um, I think you're going to have fun with it. On the subject of boosting escape rooms and all of this kind of stuff, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for both sharing our Instagram post of Box One and then sharing our holiday gift guide on your Instagram profile for a month this past winter. It's really hard to put into words how meaningful that was for Room Escape Artist as a business and Lisa and I as a crazy couple who have been grinding away at a dream in all of our spare time for the past seven years. And so I don't have a question. Wow. Just, I just wanted to say thank you for that. Oh, that means a lot. I had no agenda in doing so. I look for ways to find cool things like this. And it's really hard to promote. And marketing of these small bespoke experiences is really challenging because it's expensive. And so if there's a place you can go that steers you in the right direction, it's super valuable to anyone, myself included. So the fact that I found you guys and then you were a resource that I could use and have used as I just described half of these things that I've <laughs> bought have been because they were on your list. Um, I love it. Again, and it goes back to where we started. I love all of this. I love the authenticity of the experience that you spend time away from your screen to look at the paper. And I love the creativity involved in making something unique and coming up with codes and canon and backstory. And I just think it's so inspired. And so while I'm playing it, I want to know how to solve it, but I also am wondering how they came up with this idea and what inspired them. And so I'm, I'm a big fan of it all. So I'm glad that you are too. We appreciate how much you champion all of this passion and creativity. It means a lot to us. Love it. our sponsor, Escape from Mebo Island by Sherlock in Amsterdam. Escape from Mebo Island is a virtual escape room played on a uniquely immersive web-based platform. It's a first-person point-of-view game where your own webcam becomes your face in the game. It's really cool and it's fantastic for both families and corporate events. David, I had a chance to play this recently with a group of friends and we had so much fun, even just, I mean, the platform alone, we actually stayed for like another hour afterwards, just hanging out and having fun running around in this environment. Yeah, it's also incredibly intuitive. Lisa is not a video gamer and she was able to pick up these controls and start running with them, which is why this is really perfect for things like corporate groups. And if you are an escape room company looking to offer a digital product like this, Sherlock has an affiliate program for Mebo Island and they are looking for partners. So whether you are a player or an escape room company, there's something for you to check out here. The game is so much fun. If you want to give it a shot, we have a discount code. 
Marvin Rules will give you 20% off. For more information, check out MeboIsland.com. Details in the show notes. Before we wrap this episode, I have three questions. Try and get these out quickly. Okay. First one. What's a lesson that you learned about game and experience design while creating Box One with Theory 11 that you'll carry into future work? I think it's beneficial to playtest and to really imagine different types of people experiencing things, to really work through the possibilities and to try and defy them in some way. Can we expect Box Two? Well, I, we ended box one with a sort of call to action. So I think something should happen. Uh, we don't have anything in production at the moment. And again, not only is this not my profession, and I say mm-hmm. that with the most respect for this as a profession, but I don't want to be like stepping on anyone's toes or or trying to do something that other people have done. So the notion of a second version of box one is tricky. And we've we've been talking about it a lot. Because for people that have played Box 1 and they were to buy Box 1.1 or Box 2, what would their new expectations be? They purchased Box 1 in our minds thinking that it wasn't even an escape situation. So if you buy Box 2, do you assume that you've already played Box 1 or do you not? Do you operate in a vacuum? And if you do assume that you've played box one already, then yes, everyone's going to open the box and want to try and find everything that they can in the box because that's what happened the first round. So do you lean into that? Did that become part of the narrative that you wind up with a bunch of disparate things that you're not sure how they intersect? Or do you go the opposite direction and have fewer things? So we're doing what we tried to do initially now, but with the mind of the gamer being one that we've already fooled many times, or at least sent on our little roller coaster. So I'm not quite sure how it will play out, but I'm, it's a nut that I'm really excited to try and crack. It sounds like the battle of wits from the Princess Bride. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so last question for you. We were introduced to you by Danny and Bill from Escape This Podcast, of which all three of us have been two-time guests, though not at the same time. What do you feel is the most magical thing about playing one of Danny's games? Oh, what a great question to end on. They fill me with the same excitement and passion that we've been talking about for this whole podcast, and they do it in in a very accessible way. I'm amazed at the machinations of Danny's brain and how she can come up with an audio escape podcast every week for an entire season. And some of them are long form and some of them are singular. And like, I I just don't know how that works. I I can't wait to talk to her more about it because every time I do, I'm like, do you have a notebook? And do you just, how do you come up with these random puzzles that are always different and always fun? And quite frankly, I listen to them more than anything because I can listen to the podcast on the subway while I'm building something, while I'm fixing something. And so they're like friends of mine in my own brain. They're actually friends of mine now in real life because I've done the show a couple of times, but I love their back and forths. And I just think that they're doing what we have been talking about, which is getting more people excited about this as a way to listen to something and as a way to think about something. And it's creative and it's 
and it's uh, fun and it's challenging and it, it takes my brain to a, a different place for a little while and it's just well executed. They're lovely people. They are. I found out about their podcast because I saw that you were on it and your episode was the first one of their podcasts that I'd ever listened to. And that was the first time I even found out that you were like a fan of escape rooms and of all these Amazing. things. And it's the first time I learned of Escape This Podcast. But yes, Escape This Podcast is a must listen. Agreed. As is as are you, good sir and good and good ma'am. <laughs> Uh, they're Thank they're you. wonderful. Actually, the prototype for Reality Escape Pod was when my wife and I went on Escape This Podcast, hijacked their show, and interviewed Danny and Bill about their process nice. on one of their own episodes. That was sort of us doing a trial run of just the, the question and answer format that I had been thinking. I about remember doing listening for a while. to it, and I found it incredibly valuable. What comes next for you? Is there any project you're working on that you want to promote or talk about? What is next? I'm, I will be in the Matrix 4 film that'll come out in December of this year. A little indie production? A little indie small film. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I'm also in an HBO Max movie called 8-Bit Christmas as an actor. That's kind of an 80s take on a Christmas story, that kind of vibe. And... That's about it at the moment. I may be going abroad. I've been filming some other stuff. I may be going abroad for a bit, but I don't think I'm allowed to talk about it yet. But I might be able to hang out with Danny and Bill soon. So that would be fun. And trying to chew away at what box two could be. And otherwise just being a dad to knucklehead fourth graders and trying to keep them interested in scholastics and, and life at the same time. Awesome. Do they like doing these puzzles and mysteries with you? They do them begrudgingly because they know how much I love them. And I think that they think it's sweet. And I am very appreciative every time they let me do ones, mainly around the holidays. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I have some for the kids, but they don't, they're not into the, the problem for them is that it feels like school because I'm yeah. suddenly in teacher mode and I'm saying, okay, because I've solved it. And I'm like, okay, so... If, if A means G, <laughs> then let's count up. B, C, D, E equals H, I, J. Tricking <laughs> us into uh, learning. <laughs> Papa, can I just go play Minecraft? <laughs> and if people want to follow you and what you're doing and all of your projects, where can they find you on social media? On Instagram. I'm at NPH, my initials, which is convenient because it's it's they stand for my name. And then uh, <laughs> on Twitter, I'm at, and then the word actually, and then NPH, actually NPH. Give Neil a follow on Instagram and Twitter. The Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. If you're enjoying this podcast, you should join our Patreon. Some of the perks include a patrons-only Discord and exclusive bonus podcast content. Every podcast will have a companion after show, where David and I talk about the interview we just recorded, as well as chat more casually about games we've been playing, industry news, and whatever we feel like, really. 
you can get access to this bonus content for only $5 a month. And a lot of times, the after show is even longer than our interviews. If you're already a patron of Room Escape Artist, you'll automatically have access to this bonus content. And we have got a really fun perk for the 15 and above level, a monthly play along. Every month, we pick a game for everybody to play. David and I will then record our post-game thoughts, analysis, walkthroughs, and a discussion with spoilers. So make sure you've played the game before listening and joined for our walkthrough. We've got higher tiers available, and we want to give a special thanks to everybody who supports us at these levels. Thank you to Paula Swan, Rex Miller, Breakout Games, Derek Tam, Byron Delmonico, Scott Olson, and Wesley James. None of this work would have been possible without the support of our incredible community and supporters. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to join the ranks of our delightful community of supporters, you can learn more at patreon.com slash room escape artist. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira and edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media. When we were in Berlin filming The Matrix, COVID hadn't struck there as it had in the States. And so we were able to go to escape rooms with some of the cast and we were escaping through and we had done the different rooms and we had solved the different thing and we'd found the little golden idol and we were supposed to bring it to the strange puppet person down a slide and we did all of that and we were so excited that we had to go down the slide and we all kneeled in front and we did the whole thing and we forgot the golden idol at the end (laughs) opposite of glory (laughs) we were on our knees so like ready to cheer and we're like Anti-glory. <laughs>